Well, hello and welcome to the Ramblings of a Parish Priest podcast. My name is Father Dominic Clementi, and I'm the parish priest who's going to be rambling on this podcast. On this very first inaugural episode, I'm actually going to play a recording I did a few months back with the eighth graders in my parish school. They had asked me to come in and do a Q&A during their religion class, and so I had way in the back of my mind the idea of starting a podcast, and so I thought, well, let's record it, and maybe I can use it in a future episode someday if that were to happen. Well, I'm deciding to use it for my very first episode, especially as I start to see and, and think about where I'd like this podcast to go. It's uh, Granted, it's going to be a little hard sometimes to hear uh, the questions that the students uh, are asking me. I uh, had some microphone problems for their microphone. You should be able to hear me pretty well throughout the whole uh, series. But I did type up each question, and they're in the show notes for the podcast, and so you can go in and actually read the questions. You might be able to also, through the context of my answer, be able to guess what question they asked or what their actual question was. Uh, but if not, you can always read the questions. I've typed them out in order in the show notes. So hope this is helpful, and uh, I'll see you on the other side of it. God bless you. Um, so we were talking in class a lot the other day about like heaven, and that's sort of why uh, she was saying to ask you all these questions. So I just want to know what the official doctrine of the church is regarding heaven, the communion of saints, purgatory, hell, whatever. The first thing to keep in mind is that there's two judgments. There is what we call a particular judgment, and then there's a final judgment. The particular judgment is as soon as we die, we then have the choice, so it's, it's more of a self-judgment, I guess you could say, of whether we want to go to heaven or to hell. And that judgment is... Um, comes out of how we've been living our life here on earth in the kingdom of God. And so if we've lived a life where we've constantly and consistently turned away from God's love and we've chosen to do things that are contrary to the gospel, then when we see the angels and saints, we may, because our will is so used to turning away from what is good, we could then choose to turn away from that good permanently and wind up putting ourselves into hell. Then there's the final judgment. The final judgment is when Christ comes the second time and he comes to judge the living and the dead. So this is a big thing that Jesus keeps talking about. In Matthew 25, he separates the sheep from the goats. And so for Matthew, uh, he's using that as a story to show that when Christ comes the second time, he's going to divide us up between heaven and hell. And that also has to do with the resurrection of the body. So that's when our bodies rise from the dead. So our soul, death is a separation of body and soul. Soul goes to heaven, body goes six feet under. At the final judgment, the graves are open, our bodies rise from the dead, our souls and our bodies are reconnected to each other. And then we have that final judgment that's depicted in a lot of different artwork, especially from the Renaissance era, especially the final judgment uh, Michelangelo painted in the Sistine Chapel, where you have Christ either allowing the bodies to rise into heaven or to be descended into hell. Purgatory. Yes, about purgatory. Okay, so purgatory. 
Purgatory is after the particular judgment. So, part, um, so the particular judgment, again, is when we first die. And that's a kind of a self-judgment. So if we have d- judged ourselves to be good and we want to be in the light of God, then we choose to go to heaven. But we may not be ready for heaven yet if we have sins that are on our soul that we've yet to uh, bring to the sacraments, whether it's uh, the sacrament of reconciliation or to the Eucharist, or we may have been uh, trying to live a good life, but we were ignorant of Christ and the church, then we have this thing that they call purgatory. And that's an, an era, not an era, that's a time where we purge ourselves, hence the name purgatory, we purge ourselves of those sins, those things that are still kind of um, smudges on our soul, and then we can enter heaven once we're clean. So this is where like the practice of praying for the dead came from. So we pray for the dead so that their soul can be wiped clean, and then they can enter straight into heaven. So purgatory is kind of like a waiting room, if you will. And it's a time where we just pray for ourselves that we can be made clean and enter into heaven. The communion of saints. So saints are anybody who's in heaven. The church has canonized, has pronounced men and women that we know are in heaven because of miracles that have been done through their intercession. And so that's just a pronouncement that they're saints. Just because the church hasn't pronounced that your grandmas are in heaven doesn't mean they're not in heaven, right? And so the communion of saints is not the list of men and women we know are in heaven. It's just the list of people we know for sure are in heaven. And so that's what the communion of saints is. But there's no reason to believe that our grandparents, our loved ones, anyone who's died in our families aren't in heaven, even though the church hasn't made that pronouncement. Uh, And also it's it's a pronouncement they're in heaven. It's not the Pope saying, okay, now they're allowed to go to heaven, right? The Pope doesn't get to decide that. The Pope's just saying, we know for a fact this person is in heaven. Now also note that the church pronounces people we know are in heaven. The church never says anyone is in hell, right? And so this gets a little controversial. A lot of priests and theologians have gotten in trouble because people have thought they said that hell is empty. But what they're saying is we don't know if anyone is in hell. We don't know if people like Hitler or Bin Laden or all of these evil people that did bad things um, in, while they were alive on this earth, we don't know if they're in hell or not. They could have had a chance to repent of their sinfulness that they could have, in their prayer, asked God to forgive them, that they were truly sorry, and then God's mercy is an endless ocean. And so why wouldn't God forgive anybody who repents sincerely of what they've done wrong? And so the church never pronounces anyone's in hell. We only pronounce when we know someone's in heaven. Um, if angels are perfect beings, why do disagree Okay, so angels are not perfect. Um, angels are angelic beings, so they're only they're pure spirit. Uh, they have free will, just like us. And so angels have the choice to choose whether or not they want to follow God or not follow God. So Lucifer, the angel of light, and however many other angels, freely chose to revolt against God and to leave, um, to leave the Lord in heaven. But they're not perfect. They're they're just angelic beings. 
so what do you think heaven will be like? Oh, that's, that's a good question. Um, so I have, I have no idea. Let's preface that. Uh, I would think that heaven would, after the final judgment, when our bodies rise from the dead, I think there's no reason to think that the whole world won't be kind of perfected and will continue to live our lives in that state of grace, right? So when Jesus rose from the dead, he had a glorified body. And so Mary Magdalene, for example, didn't recognize him. A lot of the apostles didn't recognize Jesus after he rose from the dead because his body had changed into a glorified state. And so for us, that's going to happen as well, which I can't wait for because then my gut will be gone. Um, <laughs> no need to go to the gym, which would be even better. Um, and so that glory, I don't see why the rest of the world would not also be in that glorified state. But then we would all be in union with God because we'd be in heaven. So all of our actions and choices would all be to the greater glory of God. So I think that's, that's my guess. All right. How cool was Online Seminary? How cool? Uh, the seminary was, well, it's like any other school. Like, it's fun when you start there, but then you're ready to get out. Um, so my first year and a half at Mundelein was a lot of fun, and I got to meet a lot of new people, made a lot of great friends. And then after my halfway through the second year at Mundelein, then we go on a, a parish internship. And so we live in a parish uh, for a whole, like, uh, four or five months. And once I did that, you get kind of a little taste of freedom, and then you don't want to go back to school. <laughs> and so after my second year of theology, Mundelein uh, became more of a cross because I wanted to be in parishes. I wanted to be working with people. Uh, the parish I was at, I got to help a lot at their high school. I was on the south side, so I did a lot of Brother Rice High School. Um, so I love being with the, the students there. And so then when I was at Mundelein, it's, it's school, right? It's, it's graduate school. And so you're in class all day, and you were doing formation and, like, preparing to be priest at night. And it's still fun, but it's, it's school. It's, it becomes a chore, and then you're ready to graduate and get ordained and move on. So Mundelein is an awesome place, but it's, I'm much happier in a pair. Okay, so just for the sake of, I guess, a counter-argument, because a lot of people who uh, don't believe in God might have this criticism of Christianity or just religion in general. So what is your response to someone who says that the Bible isn't accurate? Because what I mean is, it was written over 3,000 years ago, writing in verses in our very vague, it could be misinterpreted. Because, again, it wasn't written in English, so it was not translated from Greek or Latin. And Hebrew. Yeah, and Hebrew. And basically get lost in translation that way, and now it's hard not to say. Okay, great question. So the first thing to always remember is that the Bible is not a complete book. The Bible is a library, right? And so that's where the whole name comes from. So bibliotech is a library, right? Uh, bibliophile is a lover of books. And so Bible, the, the whole word, means that it's a library, right? And so just as you would go into a library, um, you wouldn't just pick a random book off of the shelf and just start reading it without knowing what kind of a book it is, what section of the library you took it from. So if you go in and you take a book off of the nonfiction shelf and you start reading it as 
uh, as if it's just a, a fairy tale that it's all made up and it's really about Auschwitz during the Second World War, well then you're, you're not going to read that correctly because now you're reading something that's real and historical and you think it's fairy tale, right? So the same thing with the Bible. You can't just open up um, the, the Song of Songs, right, and then read that and think that this is a historical book. It's, it's a love poem. And that's why it's also so short. You wouldn't go into um, Revelation and read that as a historical book, right? So it is someone writing down his dream, that, that this vision he got, but it wasn't an actual event that was taking place. There was no real dragon that, that came out, and there weren't four horsemen with all of these heads and colors, right? And so the first thing to always remember is what book you're reading. Is it a historical book? Is it poetry? Is it fiction? The book of Esther in the Old Testament is a fairy tale. So there was no Queen Esther who went and beheaded the king to save the people. That was, it's a fairy tale. It's made up. And so we have to always know what book in the Bible we're reading and what type of a book it is, because it's a library. When it comes to the translations, that's why we have scholars who study the languages and they give us various translations. And so we know that the New Jerusalem Bible is the closest uh, literal translation from the Latin. You can read the New American Bible, which is the translation we use at Mass. Uh, they've had scholars translate from the original language it was written in, whether it was Aramaic, Hebrew, Greek, and then they translated that into English. So that's a great question about the scripture. And also people don't, not people, but those who are very critical of the Bible that are outside the church and don't believe in God, they assume, so who's the, oh, who's that crazy guy? Um, Bill Maher. So Bill Maher is, first of all, very obnoxious. But second, Bill Maher, who was, who was raised Catholic, for whatever reason, he has this idea that the Bible has to be all true or it, none of it's true. And that's stupid, because again, it's a library. You don't go into the Chicago Public Library and say, if I find one book in here that doesn't tell the truth, then everything in this library is a lie. What? That's just dumb. That doesn't make any sense, right? So we have to know what we're reading, and we have to understand the Bible's a library. Yeah, yeah, all the, most of my childhood. So I first started feeling called to priesthood in seventh grade. So I was just a little, you say, you're younger than all of you. And I didn't want to be a priest then. I, uh, I'm an only child. I don't have any brothers or sisters. I like to think my parents knew they had perfection after one. There was no need for any other child. If any of you are the youngest in your family, you can steal that. Um, my parents would tell you a little differently, though. They didn't want to risk having two of me. Uh, <laughs> But, uh, so I, I didn't like being alone. I was a big wimp as a kid. I didn't like being in the dark. I didn't like being home by myself. Um, I was really just a big old wimp. And so I didn't want to be alone the rest of my life. So at that time, when I started feeling the Lord calling me to be a priest, uh, I, I, I was feeling that because I saw the priest in my own parish. He came to my school a lot, and he was really cool, and he brought his N64 into the classroom and played like Mario Kart with us, and... He was just a cool guy, and he made me start thinking, like, could I do what he's doing? Like, could I see myself doing that? And I could, but then he lived by himself in the rectory. He was the only priest there, and our rectory was actually two houses that were connected to each other. So I was like, that's a lot of empty space, and it 
uh, while he was a cool guy and I looked up to him and it looked, priesthood looked exciting, it also looked lonely. He didn't look sad, but it, it did look lonely. So I didn't want to be a priest at first. So most of, then the rest of grammar school, most of high school, while I felt God continually putting the idea into my head, I kept rejecting it because I, I wanted a family and I wanted to do other things with my life. Then I got to college and thought, well, why not? And entered, I really went into the seminary with the idea I was going to show God how bad of an idea me being a priest would be. And it was just the exact opposite. He just kept showing me um, time and time again how much I love doing this stuff and being with people and helping them grow, grow in holiness. So, yeah. Can you adopt kids? <laughs> um, this was kind of a popular question. So, it, can I, yes, should I, no, okay, so um, I'm a diocesan priest, so I am not part of a religious order, so Sister Rue Michelle is a Dominican sister, she has a lot more um, people that she has to go through to get permission to do things, uh, including where she lives. For me as a diocesan priest, I only answer to my pastor and my bishop. And so there's a lot less people that I have to, to talk to and I, I don't need to ask permission for everything. So I, I get paid, I have my own salary, I can do whatever I want with my money because it's my money. Um, and I can go do things that I want as long as I have permission to do them from my pastor and my bishop. So it's up to the bishop ultimately if I can adopt Children, there have been priests in dioceses where their bishops gave them permission to adopt kids for various reasons. From uh, there was an orphanage that was overflowing, or there's a situation in the parish where parents had died and the 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 young, the young people were almost 18, but not really, and the state's foster program wouldn't have taken care of them. So there's there's situations where the bishops have allowed it. There's also situations where priests didn't ask their bishop for permission, and they went and adopted kids anyway. So can I, yes, I can. Should I, I would say no, because I don't make a lot of money, um, so I can't afford to feed more mouths than my own, and I have a pretty big one as it is. Um, I don't have extra funds to send them to get an education. Uh, I don't have uh, space for them to live, the rectory, while it's big, uh, we have four priests in our rectory. When there's only two suites that aren't being used, but they're being used for storage. So I have nowhere for children to live, right? So I should not adopt children. And then the parish could start asking questions like, well, who's paying for your children? Or are we paying for your children? Are you paying for your children? And so it it's, gets very foggy and messy and awkward very quickly. Do you attend Mass regularly when you still go to heaven? Well, it depends. Are you Catholic? Are we assuming we're Catholic in this situation? So it's ultimately up to us. As I said, the particular judgment is on us. So God doesn't send anybody to heaven or to hell. It's all based on how we've been living our life and what we choose when we die. So if we're Catholic, we have the responsibility to attend Mass on Sundays, because that's the Lord's Day of Resurrection. We don't go to Mass so that the church makes money, right? You don't have to put anything in that collection basket when it comes around. I don't get paid by how many butts are in the seats. I make 
the same amount of money regardless if anybody shows up or not. I know everybody sleeps through my homilies anyway, so you're not there to give me any kind of like joy or satisfaction, right? So the whole purpose of coming to Mass is so that we can grow in holiness and so that we can go to God, our Heavenly Father, and bring Him all of our anxieties, our worries, our cares, our concerns, but also then to thank Him for all the joys and the blessings and the graces that He's given us. We leave those at the altar, we thank Him or say, Lord, I need your help, and then we go off and we live our life, hopefully as much as Jesus lived His the rest of the week. So Mass isn't for me, it isn't for the, the bishop, it's, it's all for you, okay? I have a job whether you come to Mass or not, so I don't need you to come so that I can eat for the week, right? And so it's all for ourselves so that we can grow in holiness and so that our community can be strengthened. So all of that being said, we're Catholic, we know we have to go to Mass on Sunday for all the reasons I just said. If we keep saying no, so we keep saying no, Jesus, I know you want me there on Sunday. I know it's for all of these reasons, but too bad I like sleeping more than you. Well, if we keep saying that our whole life and we keep training ourselves to have that reaction whenever we come in contact with the Lord, well, then when it comes time for our soul to depart from our body and then we face Jesus and he says, come to me, while we spend our whole life saying no to him, there's a high likelihood we'll say no to him again. Okay, so that's, it's all in training our soul. It's a lot like um, diet and exercise. I keep going to this, right? So I know that I should eat a lot more kale and, and probably go to the gym a lot more often. But I've been training myself for too long to eat that cheeseburger instead and to watch Netflix, okay? So... Every time I want to start New Year, New Me, and I'm going to do whatever I can to lose some weight, well, I've already been training myself to say no to all of these things that will help me, right? It's the exact same in the spiritual life. If we keep saying no to God in prayer, then when the big moment comes, if we're used to saying no, we'll probably say no again. So, does that answer your question? Um, what do you do in your spare time? So I like to travel. What else? I like going to the movies. Um, what else? I, uh, I, well, I make beer, so I think you all know that. So that's a hobby of mine. I don't do that often. It's maybe only every few months. Because um, then I have to, to drink or share what I make. I make a lot at a time. Um, I, I also just like hanging out with my friends. Uh, so I get together with my friends pretty often. And... Uh, spend time with them doing whatever. We just kind of really sit around and, and just chat and catch up. Um, it's a lot harder as you get older uh, to make time because of jobs and families and things. But um, So just spending time with them. Uh, I like playing board games. So I do that with friends. I, uh, yeah, it's about pretty normal. How strong was Jesus? How strong was Jesus? Yeah. Like, physical strength? Yeah. So that's actually a good question. So Jesus was probably a pretty bulk dude. Um, I have no doubt that he was swole, right? Um, because I've been to the Holy Land, and there's, like, the Holy Land is mountains. It's all mountains. And Jesus walked everywhere. Um, there were no cars in the year 33. Um, and so to climb all of those mountains... 
uh, would give you a lot of leg strength. And here's an interesting thing, right? So Jesus, what kind of climate did Jesus live in, in the Holy Land, you know? A hot one. So it'd be like a, what kind of uh, ecosystem would it be? A desert. How many trees are in the desert? None. So how is Jesus a carpenter? Aha. So it's more likely that Jesus was actually a stone mason, right? So uh, this goes back to your interpretation question. Okay, so there was a period when we started to translate the scriptures into English here in the United States at that time, because uh, it was all uh, from Protestants that were translating the Bible the, the fastest. So the Protestant Reformation was in the uh, 15th century. Uh, that's about when we started settling over here in the United States. And so they came to the United States, and what do we have a ton of here in the United States? A lot of trees, a lot of forests, a lot of wood. What'd you say? <laughs> yes. So lots of trees. So when they were translating, when the Protestants started translating the scriptures, it didn't make a whole lot of sense to people living here that Jesus would work with rock or stone. It would be make more sense to them if he worked with wood. So they made him a carpenter. But he grew up in a desert. There's no trees. So it was more like I'd say all of this because it was more likely that Jesus was working with granite and rock and marble, and uh, all their houses were made in caves. And so they would have to hewn out caves of the, with the rock. So he was probably extremely buff. And then we read in the scriptures that Jesus passed through their midst, right? So when he goes to Nazareth and he reads the scroll of the scripture, and then they want to kill him afterwards, and all the scripture says is, and he passed through their midst. Well, it's probably all these like little tiny Jewish people, and, and Jesus is like big and buff, and probably like swat, whacked him away like flies and continued out. So I have no doubt that he was a pretty strong dude. Good question. Do parish priests get to use their parish? No. Uh, no. No, we do not get to choose our parish. Uh, we get to tell the archdiocese what we're looking for in a parish. So when I was getting ordained, I met with, we have what's called a priest placement board, and I met with uh, one of the the priest on that board, and he asked what I wanted in a parish, and I told him I wanted a school, I wanted a, a smaller community so I'd get to know everybody more, I wanted a good pastor who would take care of me and teach me and be a mentor, I wanted a smaller staff so that I could take on more responsibility and learn more about parish life, and I didn't want to go to a big mega church that I would just kind of be another employee, I wanted to have some role in leadership, so... Uh, and that's what, they, that's what they gave me. I got a parish, a great parish of school, a small staff, and a great pastor. Um, so I got to get to know people. So that's how it, it kind of works. Um, so you get to tell the Archdiocese what you're looking for. And at the same time, so like when we were looking for a new pastor, the Archdiocese sent the placement board here to St. Ed's, and people were invited to go and tell the placement board what we wanted in a pastor. And then the placement board has the daunting task of seeing what the parish wants in their priest and what the priest wants in his parish, and they try their best to link those up. Sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't, but we're not here because of the priest, we're here because of Jesus. Why did Jesus pray to God if they are one and the same? Okay, so the Trinity, that's a great question. So the Trinity, yes, we have Father, Son, Holy Spirit, three persons, one God, but there are three distinct persons 
in one God. And so St. Augustine is awesome in how he described the Trinity. Augustine described the Trinity as the Father loves the Son, the Son loves the Father, and the love between them is what unites them and then creates. And so then we read Genesis chapter 1, the Spirit hovered over the waters at the start of creation, right? And so it's the Holy Spirit that then creates. It's the same in the sacrament of marriage. The sacrament of marriage is two persons become one flesh. The husband loves his wife. The wife loves her husband. The love between them unites them. And God willing creates children. And so it's a marriage. The sacrament of marriage is an icon of the blessed Trinity. So Jesus prays. Prayer is a communication with God. Jesus prays to God the Father because he's one and that they're both divine and that they're both God, but they're two different persons. So it's just like a husband and a wife, they're one in the sacrament of marriage, but they still communicate with each other because they're still two distinct persons, even though they're one in the flesh. When the priest retires, does he, is he able to leave the rectory or is he, does he have to stay there? So uh, again, because we're diocesan priests here at St. Ed, so like Father Mike, he's about to retire. Um, so as a diocesan priest, we do whatever we want with our money, as long as it doesn't cause scandal. So there's a lot of priests who have a condo or a house. So when they retire, they're free to, to live wherever they want. So they don't have to stay in a rectory. Many do, like Father Joe. He's been in our rectory since he retired 20-some-odd years ago. Um, Father Mike, I think, uh, is intending to live in a rectory in a parish. Um, but we can, a lot of priests go down to Florida or it's some nice warm climates. So how, does, how long does it take to become a priest? It could take anywhere from six to eight years. So it depends on where you're at in your schooling. So every priest has a master's degree. And so if you went to college and you got your bachelor's degree in education, and then you started teaching for a couple of years, and then you realize the Lord is actually calling you to be a priest. Then you would go to the graduate seminary, like Mundelein. It's a graduate school. You get a master's degree, a graduate degree. And so then you would have to do two years, what we call pre-theology, where you have to learn a lot of philosophy. So to begin starting, before starting your, your theology studies, you have to have a background in philosophy. And so those two years of philosophy and then four years of theology. So that's six years. But that's also including that you have an undergraduate degree in something. If you're like me, I did not have my bachelor's degree yet when I entered the seminary. And so I transferred into an undergraduate level seminary or a minor seminary, we call it, at St. Joe's College Seminary at Loyola University on the North Shore. So I finished my undergraduate there, got my bachelor's in philosophy, so then when I went to Mundelein, the graduate seminary, I only had to do the four years of theology because I already had the philosophy background. So it takes anywhere from six to eight years. So the eight is if you do four full years of undergraduate seminary. I only did two and a half years of undergraduate seminary. And that's the end of our session that I did with the eighth graders answering some of their questions about the faith and the church. Hopefully uh, you found it helpful and maybe answered some of your very similar questions that you've had. It's going to be my goal on this podcast, since it is called Ramblings of a Parish Priest, to really just show the beauty of parish life, not necessarily for vocation purposes, although I do hope that 
This uh, podcast may help inspire some young men who are discerning priesthood to go for it. But really, I I just want to show how God's grace interacts in our lives in a lot of different ways. And uh, in in parishes, you meet a lot of different people and a lot of uh, wonderful, grace-filled, holy people who have great senses of humor. And uh, I'm blessed to witness the good Lord working in all of them. And so if I could share those stories and even share some of those people uh, through interviews here on this podcast, uh, it'd be my joy to. And we'll continue to unpack more of what I hope this podcast to be in future episodes. Thanks for listening. Stay tuned for future episodes to, that are forthcoming. And know that you're in my prayers. Please pray for me. Lord knows I need all the help I can get. Thank you. God bless you. Bye-bye.